<laughs> I just looked out the window and I saw Brahmani and Ace, who I knew were coming this morning, hurrying along. And I thought, oh, I could just tell you all and then I could give you a sign. And then when they came in, everybody should, could shout out, hello, Brahmani and Ace, thereby drawing attention to them coming in just under the wire. <laughs> but I thought, that's really not nice. <laughs> So we're not going to do it. We'll tell them that we almost did it, but we didn't do it. I also just noticed that a contingent of people came in together who significantly lowered the demographic age in the room. And I was very happy to see that because that's lovely. So there are uh, 15 people from Sonoma Academy here. Stand up wherever you are. There you are. So we'll applaud you just so you know how happy we are to see you. And that we are wishing you a really good school year. And here is the aforementioned Brahmani now making <laughs> I saw you and Ace hurrying along and I said, they're just about to come in. I could point when they come in and everybody could say, hello, Brahmani and Ace, thereby drawing attention to the fact that you were under the wire. But we didn't do it, just I did it. <laughs> So all the people from Sonoma Academy, welcome. I'm very happy that you're here. What class are you in that came here, by the way? What's the name of the class? Um, it's a special winter session class. It's called Inner and Outer Adventure. And so we're doing some Good morning, Alyssa. I'm actually a Spanish teacher at, at the high school, but we do in different sessions for two weeks in between the semesters. Oh. All experiential things. There's lots of different things going on at the school and around the school. That's great. I, I like the idea that this is an inner adventure. Um, I once was part of a community uh, that was getting together to do contemplative work together just at the time that Outward Bound was getting very famous. And uh, so we used it as the name of our community, Inward Bound. That, uh, and in Rancho La Puerta, where I often teach, where they teach a lot of fitness classes, there are classes called Inner Fitness. And this is another way you might think about it, is Inner Fitness. So my name is Sylvia, and I'm very happy. Welcome. Welcome to the beginning of the year. Welcome to today. Welcome to A's. Um, and welcome to all of you. Normally we meet every other, every person individually with saying their names. We're going to meet each other individually. This is a special day because uh, for me, because I haven't been here in six months. I've been on a sabbatical leave and uh, so yesterday and the day before and the day before were really interesting days for me. You may feel that way after a summer and you've just come back to school. Uh, I think to myself sometimes, uh, I was thinking the last few days, I remembered that when I was in the third grade or the fourth grade, at the end of a summer holiday, I would have a little anxiety about going back to school. I would think, what if I forgot how to read? Or what if I forgot how to write? Or... What if I forgot everything that I know? The last couple of days, I did an inordinate amount of preparation for today. 
I mean, those of you who know me well know sometimes I, mostly I'm prepared and sometimes I'm sort of winging it, but I really made lesson plan and I amended the lesson plan and I amended, amended the amendation as if I might have forgotten. And then we had yesterday, that was a very complicated and complex day. So I see, uh, I see facial expressions that say, yes, it was a complicated and complex day. Uh, even that I have my current vow about don't watch the TV. If I walk past TVs, which I did at different times yesterday, then they always say on the breaking news in big letters, at least some words that include the word crisis. Crisis, 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 crisis. And then this morning, end of crisis, or the temporary end of crisis. And I had two thoughts about it. One is I thought, oh... First of all, I certainly thought yesterday, I hope this does not escalate. Then I thought, it's so peculiar that the mind thinks like this in a perfectly self-centered way. I mean, the whole world is at risk. And I'm thinking, phooey, it's my day back at Spirit Rock. I wanted to have a nice day. I I didn't want it to be the end of the world tomorrow. It's inconvenient for me to have tomorrow to be the end of the world. So that, but that's the way the mind thinks about... I, I, I'm frequently telling people that my mind, I think everybody's mind, is like the big televisions in sports bars where you're watching one big football game over here and with a... Um, what do you call that thing? Um, a remote, with a remote control. You can do ding, and you can see the Army-Navy game in a little box over here while seeing uh, Notre Dame playing USC in the big... I thought my life and my mind is something like that. I could either pay attention to the whole world, or I could pay attention to Sylvia's story over here. And fundamentally, Sylvia's story is so boring. It's like a, it's like as the world turns or general hospital or something. There aren't so many characters and it just goes on and on and it changes and changes and changes. But, but this is a really big thing. It's one of the things that I've been thinking about for these six months that I haven't been here. Um, all the ways in which I've been thinking about what I know about Dharma. By the way, Dharma, for those people who have never heard the word before, is the word that's given, it's a Pali word and a Sanskrit word, and it means um, knowledge. It means knowing something. Like Buddha Dharma is knowing what the, the Dharma that the Buddha taught. It's like the wisdom of the Buddha. And what I thought today, even before the crisis of yesterday, is that I wanted for today and next week for sure. As I was making these lesson plans, I was thinking, on the first day I'll go over this, and I'll make this point, this point, this point, this point. And people here who have made lesson plans before know that by and by the lesson plan is exceeding already what you know you can do in an hour or two. So my plan is, if I run over... First of all, there's only two things to say. What's important to know, and how it's important to practice so that we remember what we know. Every once in a while we get confused if we forget what we know. And that there are things that if we knew them, Buddha Dharma is that, Vicky, I'm so happy to <laughs> I have not seen you in a long time. I'm so happy to see you. Happy New Year.
<laughs> no, no, I didn't mean any ill. I just, when, when you don't see somebody, uh, we are women of a certain age, dear, when I don't see somebody for a while and they, they, they come in, I'm happy. <laughs> okay. Um, sorry. <laughs> um, there are really only two things that the Buddha taught and, uh, which are that things change, things are always changing. Things are always arising and passing away. Yesterday's, last year's Super Bowl is so far in history. Now we can't probably even remember who played and the new Super Bowl and we say, wow, look what's happening. But even though we don't know that things pass, we know that things actually pass. When terrible times overtake us and we're in pain, somebody gets sick, there's a big worry. Somebody's in pain, there's a big worry. We have a big grief and we feel this grief will never end. There's a certain amount of solace in knowing things change. They'll change, they'll change, and they'll change again. And that same solace that comes from knowing that things change also is the source of... um, a a primal anxiety that all human beings have all of their life that at any moment something might happen that might be not good so we're always a little bit it's a fancy name for it is existential anxiety uh oh what might happen what could happen what could happen and to somehow take that in between I don't want anything bad to happen but I know it might sometime what will I do when it happens and say, well, it's not happening now. It will. Ha- we all will lose everybody that we know and love unless they lose us first. But in the meantime, since life is impermanent and well-being is impermanent, how to enjoy the present and be awake in it? One of my teachers said, it's your life, Sylvia, don't miss it. I don't want to miss it. I want to be awake for it. It's like, did you ever go to the symphony or the opera and uh, they start playing and you start to think about something that's coming up, you know, what somebody said to you or some quarrel with somebody or some problem with your parents or something else and they could be playing away and you don't hear any of that. You hear your story that's happening in you and the mind has been, the attention has been ambushed by something that's caught it holding it captive. In the meantime, the whole symphony is over. Oh dear, I missed that. I was um, I was distracted. And really what the Buddha taught were uh, in all the different techniques that he taught for paying attention. He said, if you pay attention, you'll see that that's true. Everything passes. You'll see that everything happens because other things happened and are the cause of other things. It's called sometimes karma, and people have the wrong understanding of karma. They think it's like, you did this in another life, therefore this is going to happen to you in this life. It doesn't mean that really at all. It means that actions have consequences. If I am uh, nasty to all the people that I meet, when I'm old, er... I won't have any friends because I will have been nasty all this time. That's a perfectly legitimate karma. If I'm sweet to everybody and I'm kind and I'm interested and I participate in life, when I get older, 
I'll have lots of friends who want to come and visit me. And that'll be the good karma of that. That's the only thing I think about. Actions have consequences. When I think about that, I really am careful about what I say. Uh, it's a whole big thing to talk about that actions have consequences. And we will. And the third thing that he taught is that it's possible really for the mind to be content. Not in the sense of liking what's going on, but in the sense of saying, this is what's happening and I can't do anything about it. Um, I was trying very hard yesterday not to get caught up in frantic discussions about what might happen. Because I kept thinking about, it won't help to get in a frantic discussion. I really hoped that things would smooth out. And they did. And had they not, I'd be very sad about that. But I thought to myself, you know what I kept thinking about? I thought about two things. Do you remember the movie Bridge of Spies? Who remembers the movie Bridge of Spies? Some important spy, a Russian spy, was caught and being held in a jail in the United States. And uh, eventually, this is a true story, at the end of some period of time, some equally important American prisoner of war that the Russians were holding were exchanged, and they both came home safe. And they walked over some bridge, I think it was a, a bridge from east to west Germany or something like that. Was it that, actually? And uh, the, uh, so the movie's about the, the Russian spy who's in jail and his lawyer who was trying so hard to defend him and losing this case and that case and losing again and losing again. And each time the, the, the prisoner says, oh, well, okay, and unfairly, and his lawyer frequently at various points in the movie says to him, aren't you upset about this? Aren't you, you know... Are you in a rage about this verdict? Uh, aren't you mad? And the prisoner looks at him and says, would it help? Do you remember that? Would it help? And you get left standing, no, it wouldn't help. One of my very good friends had her entire life savings invested with Bernie Madoff. And one day, she, did you all know what, who Bernie Madoff was? Bernie Madoff was a, um, an investment, um, what do you call it? Hmm? <laughs> what? <laughs> An investment thief. He was. <laughs> but before we knew he was a thief, he was a person who, what do you call a person? A financial investment advisor. And he had many, many people. He had a big reputation as being a great person. He had many, many people who invested with him. And on paper, their investment went up and up and up and up and up. In fact, it was some enormous scheme where he was juggling money here and there and the other. So it always looks like people's fortunes were going up. But had anybody called it, at oh, all of them at the same time, it would have completely shown that it was all lost. And at one point, that happens. And one of my close friends had her entire, who was then already in her 70s, had her entire savings invested with him. And I heard about it, and I phoned her, and we met soon the day or the next day afterwards 
to talk about it in person. And I said, how did you feel when you got that news? She said, first of all, she said, I couldn't believe it. I, I said, tell me again, tell me again. Someone called her and told her that I couldn't believe it. And finally, I, I got it. And she said, I really felt frightened. My whole entire, my whole entire life savings, my wife and I are living here. The only thing we have is this house we live in. We were depending on this money in order to be able to live the rest of our lives. She said, I was terrified and I still don't know what I'm going to do. And uh, I wake up in the night and I can't fall asleep at night. And then she said, you know what? The only thing is, she said, I was very confused with my fear. But she said, you know, the only thing I didn't get, she said, I didn't get mad. I didn't get angry. Because she said, I thought to myself, I have enough troubles. I don't need to make it worse. And I want to talk about how many people in this room were here the day that my friend Cliff Saren was here along with my friend Tony Bernhardt? How many, we, we, they were, both of those people on neuroscience, um, um, neuroscientists and Dharma teachers and conversant in mind states and what makes them better and worse. And then uh, we talked about the, the Buddha's teaching of four main truths. I just told you about karma and about uh, uh, things past and about the stirrup that happens in the mind when, potential stirrup that happens in the mind when we get frightened that things aren't going our way. Out of those three truths, the Buddha made what he called four noble absolute truths, axioms. All of the different strains of Buddhism Tibetan Buddhism and um, uh, Chinese Buddhism and Zen Buddhism and the kind of Buddhism that we study here, which is the earliest type of Theravada Buddhism. Theravada, by the way, means the teaching of the elders. It's the oldest level of Buddhism. They all have different ways of practicing. They even have all different cosmologies, but they all say... This is what's true. Four things are true. Every life is challenged by pain and difficulty. Everybody. Not if it, some people have more pain, they live in more difficult circumstances, all that. But every life is, is troubled, challenged by pain and difficulty just because it keeps changing. You can't keep it good. People are well until they're not, or they're alive until they're not. Every life is challenged. And the second noble truth is that suffering, the mind suffering, is when it uh, succumbs to the challenge and gets all flurried and confused and responds in ways that make it worse. And the third is that we don't have to do it that way. That a peaceful mind that went through challenges and said, okay, this is happening, what should I do now? would be not only the correct answer, but it's a possibility. I used to love that. When I first learned those three rubrics, they, they, the third one was very clearly, peace is possible in this very life, with this very mind, with this very body. And I loved that. I'd go around saying to myself, peace is possible. It doesn't, and it doesn't mean world peace, although that would be wonderful. 
but it means the mind that's able to say this is what's happening. The fourth of those noble truths is you can train your mind to have that kind of a mind that says, okay, this is what's happening. What should I do next? And it's a definition of all the things that you can do next. When um, when the Sonoma Academy people leave today, if you want to walk up the hill a little bit, just to where there's a fence that divides this lower campus from the upper campus, there's a, a pass through the gate where there's a, a prayer wheel, and you can turn the prayer wheel, and the prayer wheel has eight facets, and each of those facets is a reminder of a way that you could practice. You could practice wise concentration, you could practice wise mindfulness, wise effort, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. They're all ways to keep your mind clear so you can choose wisely. Wise understanding and wise intention, which I think are the two most important parts of the whole practice. For me, anyway, what I've noticed actually, if I had to, if I was, and I am, making a talk about what did I do on my summer vacation that you always had to do when you came back to school in the fall, that's what I did on my summer vacation. I thought to myself, what's the most important thing I know? Most important thing I know is you need to, I need, in order to have the rest of my life not pleased but content or happy or able to deal with what is, is I have to practice all those things, that it is possible for my life, even in the midst of challenge, to say this is what's happening. What can I do to make other people comfortable? That's really the hint of the whole thing. Many people who hear about mindfulness practice, which is the chief contemplative practice that we do here, Say, oh yes, I heard about mindfulness. That means about be here now. It means about being in this moment. That's the beginning of a mindfulness definition. It's about being able to be here now, in this moment, seeing clearly with a balanced mind so that my response to this moment will not make things worse, will not create suffering for myself or for other people. Because if I do that, I don't ruffle up my mind. I don't make things worse. When I started the sentence a little bit back and I said, who was here the day that Cliff and Tony were here? We were talking about these Four Noble Truths and how they teach it. Should I tell Tony's a little bit? Tony, yeah, sure. Tony, in addition to being a Buddhist scholar, uh, uh, works at Folsom Prison, volunteers at Folsom Prison, volunteers with the people in Folsom Prison are all people who have done some very terrible things. That's what's in Folsom. And most of them are not going to get out ever in this lifetime. But in the meantime, they're going to have a lifetime there in Folsom. And they're living with their minds. And for Tony, it's important to have compassion for everybody who's in an uncomfortable mind. So Tony teaches mindfulness meditation. He teaches people to sit quietly a little bit and then talk about how it is to sit quietly. He has a very kind way of of describing the kinds of men. They're all men in Folsom. 
the kinds of background that these men have had, which is uniformly terrible, really terrible. And oh, there's a lot of violence there, probably because of that terrible. And he says, I teach them about meditation and and they feel better when they sit quietly for 10 minutes or 15 minutes. We'll sit quietly in a little bit and we'll practice. And he says, I teach them the Four Noble Truths of the Buddha. He said, but I can't teach it as the Four Noble Truths of the Buddha because Folsom is a state institution and you can't teach religion there. So I teach it in street talk. I say, here are four important things to know about life. Shit happens. We make it worse. We don't have to. Here's how. That's the Four Noble Truths. I think that that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. I also feel all right about saying that because it was the name of an article in um, uh, what's uh, wait a minute Uh, Lion's Roar magazine was the name of an article in Lion's Roar Buddhist Magazine, which is an up-and-up, very respectable Buddhist journal. If you want to see that whole article, you can Google it under Lion's Roar and under the name of the article, which is Shit Happens, which is really what's true about life. It does, to everybody. Sooner or later, in big or little ways, calamities happen, and sometimes the bus is late, and sometimes the email you expected didn't come, and sometimes there's no hot water for your morning shower. All kinds of annoyances happen, and how to not get your mind confused about it. So maybe this is we're moving up towards when we can do some meditation practice ourselves. Um, so one of the things I thought about the whole time I was gone is that the important thing to remember is that that's, that's, that's what I want to think about all the time. Am I remembering uh, not to make things worse? Oh, when, uh, when Cliff and Tony were here, they said, that's the four noble truths, this shit happens, etc., etc., etc. They said the one noble truth, which is the overarching truth for those four, is don't make things worse. Like, you find out that uh, Bernie Madoff has lost your entire life's savings. That's a bad thing. Don't make it worse with anger. It means go to the go to uh, a lawyer, make uh, make uh, affidavits, uh, make applications to get some sort of restitution. But don't make it worse by infuriating your mind. If you infuriate your mind, this is another thing I thought about. If you infuriate your mind, or if you let it get totally taken up with anything, if you get enraptured with something, you confuse yourself, and then you don't choose well. So I brought this this thing. I, this is a teaching aid. I, I have been gone for uh, six months. Actually gone from... I was here New Year's Day, but I didn't look in the gift shop. And since I was here six months ago, the gift shop has grown. Did you, did you notice that? It's got a whole wall of, um, what do you call it? Knickknacks. I mean, it's not nice to call all those little Buddha statues knickknacks, 
But they're, they're terrific, all those little knickknacks, including, oh, it's not nice, I take back the knickknacks, icons, miniature icons. <laughs> but they're so cute, it looks for, like for a sand tray, something or other. And one of them is uh, the Buddha lying down. And that's not meaning the Buddha is resting from his alert mind. It means uh, there are four postures that the Buddha said, there's a, the, the teaching sutta of you should have for everybody impartial love in the whole world. That's the point. And it doesn't mean love, like falling in love with them. It means kindness in terms of recognizing they're a person, they're a living being challenged as I am by mortality. And the only possible response that, towards them that isn't going to cause me pain is compassion. If it's not going to cause me pain, it's going to cause me solace, and it will may not make the world worse. And in that particular teaching, may all beings be happy. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be. It says at the end of that long teaching, which maybe I'll read to you today, it says, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, one should sustain this recollection. So I think that this is the lying down and he's sustaining that recollection. May all beings be at ease. So if you want, you can look at this one later or you can look at them in the gift shop. And you can look at the Bodhisattva did compassion. Did you notice that big statue just behind the volunteers who greeted you this morning? Did you notice her? That's Avalokiteshvara. She's the Bodhisattva of compassion. She's more a Tibetan icon. But if you notice, she's sitting with one leg up. You know, like it's called posture of repose. And I actually love to look at that because it's like really, it's a posture of repose. Once upon a time, years ago, twenty twenty-five years ago, I was. Uh, sitting with my friend Sharon Salzberg, who was the first person who taught me loving-kindness meditation, and, which is a form of prayer for the well-being of other people. We'll do that today. And I said, Sharon, what do you think we'll be doing when we're old women? And she said to me, I don't know, so. She said, probably we'll be sitting around praying for people. And I love that. I love exactly how she said that. We'll be sitting around, not we'll be sitting, but we'll be sitting around. And I think of that Bodhisattva of compassion sitting outside this door in posture of repose. Or the Buddha lying down over here in posture of repose. And I, I want to talk today and on and on and on that praying for people does not mean every moment saying this one, this one, this one, this one, this one, but means having one's incli heart inclined to the good, heart inclined towards well-wishing. How many people saw the a beautiful day in the neighborhood? I hope a lot of people. Oh, please be sure to see it. A homework before it goes away. Uh, it's currently, well, anyway, be sure to see it because it's uh, yet another, but the best, I think, of the films about Fred Rogers and... Uh, there's a point at the Mr. Ro as in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. How many people from Sonoma Academy watched Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? Or never, you're too young for Mr. Rogers. Way too young, yeah. K 
can you arrange for them to see? Yeah. Show them the one with him uh, taking his shoes off and putting them in the waiting pool. Or the one about, uh, today I need to talk to you about a word that you've probably been hearing your parents talk about today. It's a really bad word. The word is assassination. And it, it brings tears in my eyes when I say that. So they should, if they can't all have a field trip to the movies, at least show them those two. Mr. Rogers was, for those people who did see the film, Mr. Rogers was an incredibly kind-hearted man who had his whole career as uh, the impresario, the person who is not a one-person show, but he was the main person in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood that a whole decade of children grew up with. And it has to do with when he is older and he's being interviewed, and he tells his interviewer that he prays for people all the time, and then you see pictures of him in his daily routine. He goes to the gym, he goes to the Y, or he goes to someplace with a big pool, and you see him swimming back and forth, doing swimming by himself in a lane back and forth, and the voiceover is saying, Michael Borstein, Liz St. John, um, different names of people, but they're clearly people that he's thinking about and praying for, holding in his heart as he's swimming. And it's such a lovely moment because it completely reminds everybody that praying for people does not have to happen just before you go to bed or when you're in church or in a synagogue, that praying for people is you have them in your heart as you're swimming laps or lifting weights or making a soup or weeding a garden. You could fill your mind with "Mm, this bad news, that bad news. mm." Or you could fill it with may this person be well, may that person be well and be saying all your names of people. In the early days, it's at least a century old, probably more than that, there's a book called The Way of the Pilgrim uh, about a, a spiritual pilgrim, a Christian spiritual pilgrim, who uh, is called The Way of the Pilgrim, actually. And it describes his teacher's instruction to him as he's continuing his pilgrimage walks. And the instruction for his praying is pray without ceasing. I heard that a long time ago and it really touched my heart. But then when I saw the film, and here is Fred Rogers swimming along and thinking about John Namkung and Ace and Brahmani and Vicky and other people that I know. I think Ace and Brahmani and Vicky and John, that's much nicer than this one I'm mad at. What about the news? And I think to myself... We either sweeten our minds so that we go out from the swimming pool or the church or the synagogue with a sweet heart inclined to the good for all people, or we pollute our mind with with mean and aggressive and punitive thoughts of which we are the recipients. I am the only one who's walking around in my mind and how I treat my mind. I can either lift it up and make it more buoyant or I can pollute it 
with mean thoughts about people. So that's what I thought about all these months. About the main teaching is to keep your mind clear and make sure that fills that what fills that clear mind when it's clear is inclining it to the good. I keep thinking, let's start to sit, but I'll tell you something else before we sit. Having said that, there's an uh, exhibition in New York now, probably closed, of uh, photographs of uh, a man named Winogrand, who's not living anymore. I think he's not living anymore. He was born in 1928. I'm not sure if he's living anymore. He could be. He'd be... uh, He'd be 92 or something. Whoops. My visual art. Mr. Vinogrand was a photographer in New York. and You can't actually see these pictures from so far away. But um, there's a big exhibition of his photographs, which in the early, you know, in the, he was born in 30, probably around 1950. And his thing was to take pictures of people doing all kinds of things, people waiting for a bus or people sitting on the beach or people smearing suntan lotion or people eating an ice cream cone or people hailing a taxi, people doing just ordinary people things. And they talked about the reviewer in this very extensive review. says you walk around there and you feel so moved at being a person in a world of people. You know, I, I was in the Diang yesterday, and they have all these beautiful portraits, amazing, in the Tissot exhibit, which is about to leave, by the way, and it's really worth seeing. But there are people who are all dressed up and posing for their picture. And in Winograd's photography, they're just people being people, going around and doing stuff. And he makes the point, the reviewer, she, I think, makes the point that you feel so surrounded by people that you feel very good to be a human in the world, just a regular people. And at some point, this, um, the writer of this particular thing is, is talking about how moved she was. Um, says showing all these people, people smoking alone on a sidewalk or leaning their head against another's shoulder, People showing off, goofing off, getting off flights, people reaching for each other on threadbare towels laid across scorching sound. Years earlier, during my early attempts to get sober, when I was spending many evenings each week in church basements, I'd fallen in love with a quote from the writer and theologian G.K. Chesterton. Here's the quote. How much larger your life would be if yourself could become smaller in it, if you could really look at other people with curiosity and pleasure, you would break out of this tiny and tawdry theater in which your own little plot is always being played, and you would find yourself in a freer sky, in a street full of splendid strangers. Isn't that lovely? In a street full of splendid strangers. I really thought about that. I even thought about it yesterday when I was in the museum because all the people on the, are on the, in the Tissot exhibit are all people posing for their picture. But all the people looking 
are not posing. They're just looking and being amused and being pleased. And you can look at the paintings and you can look at the people. But the idea of look around, look around. Um, there was a man named Christ, Christ, Krishnamurti who was in the 1950s. He'd been born in India. He'd been singled out as being the heir and uh, new leader to be of a certain particular sect. He came in this country with his uh, teachers and the people who had picked him up as, as to be their leader. And as a young adult, he said, I don't want to be a leader. Uh, I don't, I don't want to teach meditation. He said, you don't need to meditate. He said, you just look around at people. That's the meditation. Keep your eyes open and look around at people. We're going to start our meditation with that right away. Keep your eyes open and look around at people and see what's going on. Then you don't need to meditate. There's also, I think so, if you look at people and you really see them, that's different from having a blur. When you look at the Winograd pictures, they're just doing ordinary things, but you look at them and all of a sudden you inhabit their mind space. What happens is your particular story gets less and less. You don't need it. Your particular story is, after all, after a certain amount of time, a pain in the neck. You've heard it so much. It's boring. You know, sometimes when your mind wanders and you start to rethink an argument with somebody, when I see them again, I'll say, and then they'll say, and I'll say, and they'll say. And then you say, you know, I have done this already 30 times. And it may or may not happen that I'll ever meet them or that I'll ever say that. And we'd spend a lot of time. This is the one more quote I wanted to read out of this. I wanted to, I was going to bring you the um, Walt Whitman poem, Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, which gives me the same feeling uh, that he writes about going across from Manhattan to Brooklyn on the ferry and looking down and seeing how the um, the uh, waves are coming out, that the ferry makes a certain wake and he's watching it and uh, the people around him and the shore is approaching. And he uh, has a, a, a thought about how many people have stood just where I'm looking and looked just where I'm looking and been surrounded just as I'm surrounded by a ferry full of strangers. And how beautiful it is to feel oneself in the ongoing parade of ferry crossers, not so alone in the world, in the great unfolding of mankind, humankind, excuse me, humankind, in the great unfolding, I'm just a piece of it. Like the, when people see the picture, the, the framed picture in my house of my parents and my grandparents and my great-grandparents who I never saw, you know, I look at it and I think their DNA shows up in me but and and my genetics come from them, but I am just carrying the genes into the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. And you feel okay. Then you do that for your period of time, and then you don't do it anymore. So this is Walt Whitman on something else, though, not crossing Brooklyn Ferry. I found this writer is saying I found myself thinking. Looking at Winograd's photographs of the open roads and beaches of America, its motels and airports, and especially the crowded sidewalks of its most populous city, I found myself thinking of Walt Whitman, who had roamed the streets of his beloved island 
of Manahatta a century earlier. Maybe Whitman found his own answer to his, quote, agitated sense of self, close quote, in his peculiarly radical vision of expansiveness, his feeling of effusing into others, feeling them effuse into him, a faith both ecstatic and arrogant. Whitman certainly felt composed of strangers. His 1860 poem, To a Stranger, addresses himself, addresses itself to them. Passing stranger, do you not know how longingly I look upon you? You must be he I was seeking, or she I was seeking. It comes to me as of a dream. I have somewhere surely lived a life of joy with you. You give me the pleasure of your eyes, your face, your flesh, as we pass. To be able to move out of your own self-preoccupation and into the great mass of humankind coming behind us and after us. Sometimes when I uh, see uh, a, a brand new baby, one of the things, because baby anything is always so cute, baby animals, kitties or puppies, brand new baby, but I see them and I not only see how cute they are, but I have this curious feeling that the world cannot come to an end because this beautiful new baby has just come into it and somehow it has to fix itself up in the next 20 or 30 years before it's absolutely too late for this baby to have a life. I really, it's, it's a, on the one hand you say, well, that's a fantasy. It certainly, who knows if there'll be another hundred, after a hundred years, there'll be a habitable planet. But I think to myself, I read last week that they have definitively found that by feeding a certain kind of seaweed, which is abundantly plentiful and easily harvestable, and by feeding that seaweed to cows, the whole business of cow farts polluting the world, which they are, they do a tremendous, they do a tremendous amount of polluting the environment, that methane, is more than erased. It doesn't happen. All they have to do is put seaweed doesn't have to everybody stop eating cow it doesn't it will it'll make a much bigger difference and easier and wouldn't involve killing cows or killing agriculture or farmers just feed them seaweed and they would be right away did you see that i mean that's an important thing you know, look it up about a certain kind of seaweed to cows being the end of methane so people know that I also tell myself, as I am an old person lamenting for the world, I think there are very smart young people, like the people who figured out the methane, probably figuring out how to get the farmers to give the cows the methane. Somebody says that? So, I keep saying, so we're going to sit, we're going to sit. We are. This is the other... While I was in the Legion of Honor yesterday, I bought, I don't know, maybe the fifth time, I keep buying these, and then I give them to people as presents because I visit them. They're very good house guests. I say to myself, you know, when you go in a foreign city, you can buy a snow globe. You shake it up. Where is it? You don't know. And then the snow goes down, 
I just see, oh, Eiffel Tower. Oh, it's this, this, this. Oh, Tower of London. So you could kind of guess, right, what's going to be. Oh, it's going to be in San Francisco. I have to do this. Okay. There you go. San Francisco, we don't have snow globes. We have fog globes. <laughs> what's going to come out of this fog globe? How many people think it's going to be the Golden Gate Bridge? Da da da. Hmm? It's very sparkly fog. You see the bridge? You know what? Come and get it. And that while we while we have the rest of our time together, you play with it and then pass it to the next person. Don't you feel like having it? So we'll just pass it around. I like having that. First of all, it's a very nice it it's it's it teaches on two there are two points for this i teach i take it when i teach because i want to make the point that when the mind is filled with fog you can't see you can't think straight you ever hear that expression people say i'm so mad i can't think straight that's exactly right if you get mad enough you can't think straight which is why i've been trying very hard these last weeks and days not to get distraught not to get infuriated because I can't think state at the same time. I want to be informed. I want to take a deep breath. I want to think of things that will keep my mind balanced. The primary thing that I think about that keeps my mind balanced is I say to myself, would it help? It's just that would it help if I got all whipped up now and called a few people and said, can you believe that this is the end? Would it help anybody? Would it help me? Would it help them? Would I just be whipping up everybody into a... Would it help? And the other thing that I say to myself is, wait a minute, is there anything I could do that would make this better? Like like last night hearing the news, uh-huh, is there anything I can do? I said, well, I can, I can show up tomorrow morning in Spirit Rock and I can talk about it's possible to keep your mind seeing clearly. Or it's possible to return your mind to clear seeing. It's possible to return your mind to that kind of balance that says, I see clearly, even I see clearly this is terrible. And I'm trying to figure out what to do. But to see clearly that the whole thing is returning to clarity. And it's not that we'll practice so much that we'll have absolute clarity all the time because we get startled. I learned a new word. You know what? I think we should sit. (laughs) Um, Because I think I talked already a lot of new words. Um, where are the Sonoma people? Are you all over here except for your teachers over there? You're doing okay? Is this interesting to you? <laughs> okay, after we sit, I'm going to ask you if you have any questions. And then before the end of the time, I'm going to ask again. 
the globe is making its way. There you go. Ta-da. So if the globe comes to you, maybe we should put the globe down while we're all doing the meditation. That seems like a good idea. Vicky, keep the globe until we finish with our meditation period. Okay. Um, this is what's true about uh, Buddhist meditation. First of all, uh, not all Buddhists meditate. It's a uh, it's a common it's a common myth. They say, "Oh, you're a Buddhist." Hello. Not all Buddhists speak in a low tone of voice, nor do they all meditate. And in Asia, where Buddhism is in some countries the major religion, the the and there are monks who make a life commitment to being meditated cloistered monks. All the lay people are not mainly spending their time meditating. They are mainly preoccupied with honing their ethics and behaving in a way that's completely moral because that does not create suffering, unnecessary suffering. It's enough pain in life without making it worse. I won't speak to that point now, but afterwards maybe. It's enough pain without making it worse. All of the Buddhist meditations, whether they're Tibetan meditations or Zen Buddhist meditations or Chinese Buddhist meditations uh, or here, mindfulness meditation instructions, they all of them differ in techniques. Sit with your eyes open, sit with your eyes closed, sit with your eyes this, sit with your eyes that. Put your hands this way, put your hands that way. They have different techniques, but they all are aiming for the same the same point of clarity of mind and ability to choose wisely. And they all have a certain amount of calming of the mind and making it steady, and at the same time, keeping it alert so that you don't fall asleep when the, as the mind gets steady. Because it's very easy as you're listening, or as you're sitting, to start to, especially when you bring attention to something as regular as breathing, to fall asleep. When a lot of people, when they go to bed, if they have trouble falling asleep, they count their breaths, so they fall asleep. So to, to count your breaths and stay up and not fall asleep. So the first instruction about eyes is you can close your eyes if you want to, but if you tend to fall asleep, don't close your eyes. Don't close your eyes. You can perfectly well meditate with your eyes open. And sit up straight, because the, the straighter up you sit, the more the breath goes into a straight-up body, the more um, the more alert it tends to make you. Um, it's not a requirement, but it's a good idea. So sit with dignity, my friends would say. Sit with dignity. Keep your eyes open or let them close. Feel yourself 
sitting. You know you're sitting without opening to check, am I lying down or standing up? You know you're sitting because there's pressure on your bottom. And on the back of your back, on the chair, you know whether your hands are holding hands with yourself or whether you have them on your knees or open or closed because they'll feel different one way or the other. Feel how when the breath goes into your body, your upper arm, your rib cage fills up and your arms move out and in. That's a good way to keep your attention awake. See if you can count five breaths coming in and then going out. Don't make them faster. Don't make them slower. Don't necessarily hold on to them. Just let your body breathe itself five times and pay attention to it. Body fills up with breath and empties with breath. Your body continues to breathe itself in and out. Bring your attention to your face. Maybe any other part of your body that isn't covered with clothing. And the room's a little cooler than body temperature. See if you can feel that your face is a little cooler. Feel the temperature of the room in your face.
listen. The room is very quiet. But listen for maybe the sound of your own breathing or the person next to you or any other little sound or the sound of no sound. It's waking up attention through waking up all the sense modalities of the body. Feeling the coolness or the warmness of the room. Feeling, listening with your ears. Maybe you can feel the perimeter of your whole body as if it's kind of like a balloon. Of course, you're not breathing air into all your body, but as the breath goes in, it makes your whole body a little bigger. And if you're very careful with your attention, you can feel your shoulders raise up and your back push the back of the chair and your thighs push down into the chair. And even your feet on the floor, which are very distal to the breathing. The body feels different when breath is going in than when breath is going out. See how sharply you can bring the whole image of your body into your mind's eye and feel it. Bigger and smaller. See what happens to your mind if you smile.
If you start to fall asleep and you know you're starting to fall asleep, open your eyes. Otherwise, taking a nap isn't the worst. What we're practicing having is a mind of ease. Be at ease. Now I won't say anything for about, oh, nine minutes maybe. Try to just rest in this place. Notice that you keep on thinking thoughts. The thought machine does not stop. Imagine the thoughts are like clouds in the sky. They just roll by and you don't have to pay much attention to them. You can even notice what they're saying. Just don't grab one and run with it. See if you can practice that. That's really a a skilled practice because they all come with a little bit of think me attached to them. You can think, nah, I'm not thinking you. I'm just sitting here quietly, abiding in a really open space.
We'll see a little bit at the end of the time again. Now I want to ask you, especially I want to ask our uh, our high school guests today, what was your experience or what question would you like to ask me about that meditation? Oh, that would be great, Anne. Anne will give you a... Uh, and Pamela will give you a uh, microphone. microphone if you need it who would like to ask a question <laughs> there you go there's somebody good you want to stand up for us please what's your name my name is Kate hello Kate how long have you been practicing Buddhism? Since uh, 40 years, 41, since the summer of 42, since the summer of my 41st birthday in 1977. A friend of mine said, you should go to this retreat, it'll be great. And it was very, very hard because I went with no um, previous experience of sitting quietly. For We just sat for nine minutes, but... I sat there for 14 days and didn't talk to people. Not that I didn't sit there for 14 days, but the 14-day the schedule was to be in silence and sit for an hour and then walk for an hour and then sit for an hour, have lunch and then sit for an hour and walk for an hour, not talk to any of the other people that were there. And the teachers talked to us and they gave uh, lectures on what this was supposed to do for us, which I didn't really get. I mean, I understood English, and you know, I, 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 and I'm anyway a psychologist before that, so I got what they were talking about, but I didn't really get it. Well, actually, Kate, it's a little bit of a, of a story, but you can sit if you want to, and you don't have to stand the whole time. But I think it's probably a worthwhile story. I'll see if I can do it in an abridged way. I, I really did stay there, so when I came home. And uh, afterwards told all my friends I was there and the bell rang at 5.30 in the morning and we sat and we walked and we sat and we walked. We always didn't talk to people. We ate in silence. And we tried to get our mind to do more or less what you I asked you to do. Pay attention moment to moment. Did you get distracted at all? Did you fall asleep at all? But the distraction was in thoughts. Were you thinking about, I wonder what this is all about? What is this? This is anybody... What kind of things did you think about? Hmm? Lunch. How much longer? How much longer? I once taught at a senior center, speaking of age differences. I'm, I can say this because I am very senior now. And I said to the, the group of people, very nice people, and we had a very good time together. I said, I explained a lot of things, and I said, well, now we're going to sit for two minutes. And they said, two minutes? Like I said, two years, you know. That, but it seems like a long time. But 
I sat and I walked, I sat and I walked, and I listened to why the teachers thought that sitting quietly in that way and paying attention to the thoughts, not just trying to calm yourself down and stay awake, but noticing what you thought and noticing how certain thoughts like that person that said that bad thing about me, when I get home from this retreat, I'm going to phone her up and I'm going to tell a bunch of other people what she said and what's more, I'll do this and this and this. And then discover, you know, my mind doesn't feel good from that. That was an exercise in polluting my mind. That wasn't good. Maybe that's not so wise. The biggest thing that I learned in in that two weeks is uh, things looked a little sharper. People's faces were a little clearer. The leaves were a little sharper. The lunch smell was a little more delightful. I could tell whether they were making Italian food or Thai food for lunch all the way down the hall. But you can do that if you're stoned too because it's a, it, you know, it, the, your, your senses are a little bit waked up. And it's a, it, you know, there are easier ways to get stoned than sitting there day after day after day in the silence. I said, this can't be the whole thing. And at the end of the whole thing, I called my husband to say, tomorrow I'm coming home and my plane is scheduled to arrive at such and such a time. And uh, So meet me then. And I said, how's my dad? And my father, who lived just down the street from us and was one of my, and a very good dear friend of mine, I am an only child, my father was an only child. We were good buddies. We were running 10K races together. And he said, well, I need to tell you that your father was feeling poorly and went to the doctor. And he was uh, diagnosed with um, multiple myeloma, which is now a treatable and controllable illness. But at the time, they said he probably has two years to live. And I remember standing in the phone booth. Those were the days of having phone booths. And uh, I remember feeling very sad because I loved my dad very much. And at the same time, my mind thought, well, I guess we're going to have to do this together now. You know, we did the races together. We did this together. We did it. Now we'll do his dying together. And I wasn't at all pleased about that. I want, when I tell people that story, I say it wasn't as if I sailed right over the fact that he was going to die. I felt terrible about it. But I didn't feel hysterical about it. which was a, and, and I noticed that I didn't feel hysterical about it. And I thought, hmm. And then some years later, when I told people that story, I told people about going on retreat and how I had such a migraine because I don't never have migraines, but I didn't know there wasn't any caffeine on the retreat. Not a terrible caffeine withdrawal. That, that took three or four days to have a terrible headache till that finished. And in those days, I was a yoga teacher, and I thought, well, my body will be a piece of cake. I'm in good shape. My whole body hurt from sitting still so long. And people say, why did you come back, and why did you continue to do it? So I don't really know, except I liked my teachers very much. And I liked very much their idea that you would be that people who practiced would be able to move through their lives with a certain amount of equanimity. And I think that the moment in the phone booth where I didn't faint or get hysterical or come apart was like a a a, a promissory note. I thought to myself, you know, if I'd gone two weeks earlier or two weeks later, that story couldn't have happened because I couldn't have been sitting for two weeks before hearing that news. 
So thank you, Kate. That's why I started. And I went to lots of retreats. And uh, I wasn't a very diligent, every-day-at-home, sit-in-practice person. I wasn't very diligent. That's the truth. So frequently I went away for a weekend where I practiced. And I was also a yoga teacher, so there's a lot of mindfulness in yoga practice. And now I get up in the morning and uh, people say, do you meditate first thing in the morning when you get up? First thing in the morning when I get up, I go in my coffee. That's what I do because I still like to drink coffee. And I get coffee and I sit down in my seat where I like to sit by a window. And nowadays it's winter, I like that because the sun usually is not up. And I drink my coffee and I sit there and I sit there for a while. I drink the coffee, I enjoy it. And usually I I think about who I'm going to see that day and what I'm going to talk about and do meditate. That's a meditation, see, thinking about who you're going to see that day. And if I think about, ugh, I have to do that, say, that'll be all right. It's like I organize it in my day. I pre-think about what's going to happen. So I'm I, this morning I certainly pre-thought. First thing I thought is I'm so glad that it's not worse. And then I thought I'm so glad that I'm going to Spirit Rock this morning because in a kind of editorial, you and I, you and I sat together on the Wednesday following the Tuesday that was 9-11. We sat together on the Wednesday that was the Wednesday that the office building in Oklahoma City was blown up. We sat together on the eve of the Gulf War and on the eve of the invasion of Afghanistan. And the bad things that happened happened anyway. But we sat together with people who were as have like mind. All of you believe, as I do, I think, that all of these crises happened because people made them happen. So people could make them unhappen. That they, that um, I, I, it's, uh, I wish I could say the Buddha said, but the Bar- Barack Obama, he probably did, but Barack Obama comes to mind. In his last speech before, uh, before he left the White House, he said, nothing is the end of the world until the end of the world. So it's a very good thing to think about. When I went to... Um, When I went to look in the, in the newspaper, the New York Times gets delivered in my house. And uh, there are a number of articles about how dangerous, what a dangerous edge yesterday was. And at the same time, there's an article called India's Pickle Queen Preserves Everything. And it's a very, it's a very big major story in section, in section D, the food section of the, today's New York Times about a woman who's in her mid-60s now who some decades ago painstakingly wrote 1,000 recipes for pickles and relishes with every possible thing and was going to produce them in a book. But just when they were about to... There was was going to be a big book uh, publication event... And she was diagnosed with a very difficult, uh, a terrible tumor in the middle of her, in her, in her brain, right in front, for which she had surgery at the time. 
and they took out the tumor. And it's all these many years later, and she's alive, and finished the book, and um, they show a picture of her, and they show also that um, she has very deep and um, very noticeable holes in her head where the tumor was taken out. People have said to her, you know, you could have some cosmetic surgery to make that not visible. She said, no, no, it's not that big of a deal. That's not important. It's important to share the recipes. And for all these decades, the the recipes have kind of been uh, like like a cult movie that wasn't exactly available for everybody, but people have been faxing each other and now sending each other pages for that. Finally, it seems like it's now gotten together, the whole thing. Maybe it's going to be published in a real publication, but she says, it doesn't matter if I, uh, because she said, I don't think so. She said, I want to do it as a PDF that people can download, because I want to make money for it. It's just a very good cookbook about pickles, and that... And you know, I, and the reason I'm telling you about that is when I read this, it's after reading the editorials about what a really difficult situation the United States is now in, and the world is now in, and the planet is now in. It's very nice to read that story about the pickle woman who <laughs> says it's really important that I not make money on this and that I give away pickle recipes and I actually read the pickle recipes and I thought, oh, I could make that, that carrot recipe that's in there. It doesn't have to wait at all. It's just got carrot and lime and jalapeno and ginger and said so you could eat it right away. You just shake it up. But oh, maybe I'll make that for dinner. And the reason I'm telling you that whole process of thought is that the practice, the, the mindfulness practice that's involved there is being attentive to what fills the mind and is about to tilt it over like the world is coming to an end. Say, wait a minute. I can't, I, it, wouldn't, it would not help me today to be all overwrought and go to teach. The best thing I can do is come and not be overwrought. I think, it's, I think the United States is in a very difficult situation. I very, very much hope that things get changed with the election that comes up. I'm kind of counting on that happening. Maybe more happening now, but um, I think people maybe would know. But thank you, Kate, for asking that question. It doesn't. And also, one of the th- other things when I said this is what I really believe. I really believe that it's possible to have a clear mind in the midst of everything. And I really mean, and and I really believe that it's a practice. Notice, uh uh-oh, mind not clear. What can I do? Uh, There's an article in... uh, uh, I'm not even sure what this is out of. Wait a minute. Oh, it's out of the Atlantic. People are asking, what would Mr. Rogers do? Is the name of this. You know, the Mr. Rogers... The the film, What Would Mr. Rogers Do? is um, a film adaptation of the fact that there's really a man named Tom Juno, who, when Mr. Rogers was just finishing his career 20 years ago, wrote an article for Esquire about Mr. Rogers. And the film is about that he was called to, he was invited by his editor to write uh, that article. And he really had a tremendously cynical view about people and uh, 
the no good habits of people. And in the movie, it's more as a really a story of Mr. Juno and his wife, and his meeting with Mr. Rogers, and he's altogether cynical about, uh, I'll go meet him in Philadelphia and get it over with. And, and they had a lifelong friendship, and he, Mr. Juno, gets changed from it. But at some point, he said, um, at, uh, he said about his, the love and the kindness that he's learned from him, but I can see that what he wanted from me and everybody else, he never stopped, He never stooped to proselytizing. He was actually a minister. He went to divinity school. But he lived a life of prayer. In the movie, as I told you, he's praying while he's swimming. And he wanted us, he wanted me to pray. On September 5th, 1998, Fred Rogers wrote an email after I asked him whether he had seen the big movie of the day, Saving Private Ryan and whether he had ever contemplated the possibility of military service. He answered as follows, Dear Tom, no, we didn't see Private Ryan. Joanne didn't want to, and I guess I didn't either. I remember so well those days when we were huddled around the radio listening to news of battles, and finally the war's end. I remember the V-Days and the release of prisoners. I, In fact, I remember crying when I heard about the release of the prisoners. I think we all have certain prisons within us and such news releases are sometimes in some hearts taken very personally. I have no idea how I would have responded to a call to the war. I may have had to do alternative service as did the friends. I have a friend, not a Quaker friend, who was in the ambulance corps. I would have probably been good at something like that. I would not have been good at shooting people though. I don't think I could have done that. I was thinking when I read that, uh, and again just now when I read it, that if your mind is filled with blessing people and praying for people, I don't think, I could be wrong, but I don't think in the magical potency of prayer, I don't think it flies through the air, my prayers, and goes in people or actually steadies the hand of the surgeon. Although if somebody said to me, uh, prayed around me about to do a surgery and said, may the surgeon's hand be steady. I would definitely say, amen. But I don't think, I think it would be steady because it would be steady because she had practiced a lot and she was taking care of herself, not because some agency went around and caused that to happen. But I think that the mind that's filled with prayer is not filled with um, turmoil. It is its own reward because the mind that's filled with goodwill is filled with goodwill. So I had some poems that I had brought. I, You know what? One of the reasons in the last couple of weeks I was looking so much forward to coming back to being with you is I missed, I missed the fact that when I'm not here with you, I see all these great things and I think, oh... I would love to read this. This week I'll read this. I'll tell them about this. I'll tell them about that. And there were, I was for six months with nobody to tell. <laughs> I tell my friends. I tell my family. Okay, I found some of the stuff. Anybody else from Sonoma had a question? Otherwise I'm plunging ahead. I'm plunging ahead. 
one of the things that it, so that was what, one of the techniques is to notice my mind is too filled with distress now. What can I do? And it's not pretend it's not there. It's do something else to make the mind bigger. So, said, so one of the things I can do for myself is to remind myself there's nothing I can do. Tomorrow, relax, you'll figure out what to do. Make the mind bigger. Think about Think about this woman who has spent 20 years faxing recipes, waiting for a printed book, and now says, no, I want to give it out free as a PDF. That's a really, picks me up to hear that story. Doesn't pick you up, that's a good story. This was uh, Nick Kristoff. That's on the last day of last year. Nick Kristoff writes for the New York Times. If you're depressed by the state of the world, let me toss out an idea. In the long arc of human history, 2009-19 has been the best year ever. I should put this on my refrigerator. The bad things that you fret about are true. But it's also true that since modern humans emerged about 200,000 years ago, 2019 was probably the year in which children were least likely to die, adults were least likely to be illiterate, and people were least likely to suffer excruciating and disfiguring diseases. Every single day in recent years, every single day in recent years, another 325,000 people, that's more than a quarter of a million, got their first access to electricity. Every day, more than 200,000 got piped water for the first time. As recently as 1950, 27% of all children died by the age of 15. Now that figure has dropped to about 4%. Perhaps the greatest calamity for anyone, well, that's in the last paragraph I read over it. If you were given the opportunity to choose the time you were born, and it'd be pretty risky to choose a time in any of the thousands of generations in the past, noted Max Roser, an Oxford University economist who runs the Our World in Data website. So there's an Our World in Data website. Who knew? I didn't look that up yet, but that would be good. Almost everyone lived in poverty, hunger was widespread, and famines were common. But, 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 you say President Trump, climate change, war in Yemen, starvation in Venezuela, risk of nuclear war with North Korea. All of those, says Christoph, are important. That's why I write about them regularly. Yet I fear that the news media and the humanitarian world focuses so relentlessly on the bad news that we leave the public believing that every trend is going in the wrong direction. A majority of Americans say in polls that the share of the world population living in poverty is increasing. Yet one of the trends of the last 50 years has been a huge reduction in global poverty. I think what happens when we hear something like crisis, crisis, breaking news crisis, is we get frightened. And I think that the what the instruction, if there was a takeaway, was to know I've just gotten frightened, so I'm not seeing clearly what can I do to balance the scales. 
can think about the woman today with the pickles and go home and make some pickles maybe. I can think about, this is one of my more favorite poems. I can make the, um, ah, I can make a, I can, I can make this, the, the field, the mind gets tight when it gets mad about something. You make it bigger. In order to actually live out an instruction from the Buddha, one should think about one's mind. May, may my mind be free of enmity. Think about that, free of enmity. Who here has a mind? Most of this minute your mind is free of enmity, isn't it? Well, I could remember you know who and you know who. But why, I can remember that I don't like him. But I don't have to have enmity in there. Just not liking is not liking. This is Billy Collins, who's maybe my favorite poet. This poem is called Another Reason Why I Don't Keep a Gun in the House. <laughs> the neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He is barking the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on, on their way out. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house. I put on a Beethoven symphony full blast, but I can still hear him muffled under the music, barking, barking, barking. And now I can see him sitting confidently in the orchestra, his head raised confidently as if Beethoven had included a part for barking dog. When the record finally ends, he's still barking, sitting there in the oboe section, barking. His eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton while the other musicians listen in respectful silence to the famous barking dog solo, <laughs> that endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. I love that. I love that. That's one of my favorite poems in the world. This is a Buddhist nun of centuries ago, recently uh, collated, someone collated their poems and translated them into English. So the nun, what made you a nun is you left home and joined an order of nuns. Full of trust, you left home and soon learned to walk the path, the Buddhist path, the Eightfold Path. Learned to walk the path, making yourself a friend to everyone and making everyone a friend. When the whole world is your friend, fear will find no place to call home. And when you find, when you make your, the mind your friend, you'll know what trust really means. Listen. I have followed this path of friendship to its end, and I can say with absolute certainty it will lead you home. I love that. The word metta, as in metta meditation, which gets translated as loving-kindness meditation, which is not my preferred translation, because I think it would be better if it was called friendliness meditation. In a few minutes, when we sit again, we'll do the uh, um, a meditation practice, which I really like to 
teach a lot and use a lot because you use it in daily life as much as when you sit down or take some time out. It's saying over to yourself in your mind, may I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. May I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. I like, and the the word friend in uh, Pali is uh, Maitri or Metta. In Sanskrit, it's Maitri, I think. But it should be called, instead of loving kindness meditation, Metta meditation, it should be called friendliness meditation. When I begin to teach that meditation of saying certain rubrics, certain forms, certain prayers over and over, and I say it's about, uh, this should include all, it says in the sutta, in the sermon, all beings, uh, may all beings be at ease, omitting none. And then somebody says, wait a minute, you're not going to ask me to wish well to so-and-so and so-and-so. And And they mention some people who are formidable, difficult people in the world. You think, why not? Why not? Wishing well doesn't matter. First of all, if wishing well could magically make them well, that would be great. But in the meantime, I do not pollute my mind by wishing ill. Wishing ill doesn't do anything other than pollute my mind and make me frightened. I'll read you one more Billy Collins and then we'll um, sit again a little bit. This is called Downpour by Billy Collins. Last night we ended up on the couch trying to remember all of the friends who had died so far and this morning... I wrote them down in alphabetical order on the flip side of a shopping list you had left on the kitchen table. So many of them had been swept away as if by a hand from the sky. It was good to recall them, I was thinking, under the cold lights of a supermarket as I guided a cart with a wobbly wheel up and down the long strident aisles. I was on the lookout for blueberries, English muffins, linguine, heavy cream, light bulbs, apples, Canadian bacon, and whatever else was on the list which I managed to keep grocery side up until I had passed through the electric doors where I stopped to realize as I turned the list over that I had forgotten Terry O'Shea as well as the bananas and the bread. It was pouring by then, spilling, as they say in Ireland, people splashing across the lot to their cars. And that is when I set out, walking slowly and precisely, a soaking wet man bearing bags of groceries, walking as if in a procession honoring the dead. I felt I owed this to Terry, who was such a strong painter, for almost forgetting him, and to all the others who had formed a circle around him on the screen in my head. I was walking more slowly now in the presence of the compassion the dead were extending to a comrade. Plus, I was in no hurry to return to the kitchen where I would have to tell you all about Terry and the bananas and the bread. I love that. I was thinking at the end of the year there were a lot of in memoriam 
lists. Toni Morrison, Elijah Cummings. You tell me. Uh, huh? Ramdas. Ramdas, of course. Ramdas. Herman Wolf died. At 103. And um, Gene Hauser. Uh, died at a hundred. Jean Hauser is the mother of Marty Lay, who comes here all the time. And Marty had brought her old mother all the time, who loved to come. At the end, I don't think she... No, she had to have a wheelchair to get up that ramp, and then she came in on a walker here. But she was a hundred, and her mind was there. Her husband died. I said to Marty, so was that two years ago that your dad died? She said, George Hauser. said, no, he died five years ago. But it just goes like in a second. Her father was a major, and and Jean, were major people in uh, the civil rights movement. Her father was a tutor to Martin Luther King in planning his work. And George Hauser died five years ago. And uh, Jean Hauser died uh, on New Year's Day. She'd been up and in a chair and in the common room of the skilled nursing place she was of of the Quaker uh, living facility in Santa Rosa, friend's house. And she was up and knew it was New Year's and went to bed and didn't get up in the morning. And uh, the, uh, the, the habit at friend's house when somebody dies from that skilled nursing, because a lot of people die out of that skilled nursing, is uh, that when the mortuary comes, the person who died is wheeled out on a gurney under a quilt with squares that someone makes and keeps up to date so that there's a square with Gene Hauser's name on it. And the person is covered with that quilt of all those other people who were part of that friend's community. And the whole community, those that are able, walk along with the gurney singing her out. Uh, Donna Nobis Pachim and other songs that were meaningful to her. It's called singing people out of this world. So she called to tell me about it. And she thought she'd come today and then wrote this morning that she couldn't. She said she'd come next week. But I want to put Jean and uh, George Hauser also in the in memoriam. And it's just one year that my friend Joelle died on the first of the year. You want to add somebody that you knew that died this year? My husband, Alex. Uh, Rabbi Nathan Siegel. I knew him. 
Robert Hall. I knew him as well, and I knew he died. I'm sorry I'd forgotten him. He was a spirit rock teacher. He'd lived down in Todos Santos for so long. And in the end, when it was coming up to his death and he knew he was dying, he said, it's taking so long. I like that line in Billy Collins's. All of a sudden, there's so many of them. That's one of the things about getting old. People are saying to me, I know more people on the other side than on this side. We didn't all talk to each other today, which now I'm looking at Ace. (laughs) Ace is always my person. To remind me that it's very good for people to talk to each other, too. So this is what we're going to do. We have 15 minutes till 12. We'll sit for five minutes. And I'd like to invite you to... I'll, I'll remind you of the instructions for may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend. And we'll do that. And then I'll also say, because it's also our way of doing things, that um, you can mention into the air anybody who you know who is dear to you or that you're thinking about who is in some special condition. It doesn't, doesn't require that the special condition be dire could be that your grandchild just left for college or that something good happened, but something that's special that we could all share holding in our hearts together. And then we'll all greet each other and tell each other Happy New Year and have a good day and all that. But let's sit. Sit up tall. Take three very particularly deep breaths in and out. And then let your breath just go at its own regular rate. And we'll sit for five minutes, during which time I hope you'll either stay just with the breathing in and out, just with smiling, or just with hanging out in the space.
And if you want a particular technique for practice, say to yourself on a breath in and out, may I meet this moment fully? And then take another breath in and out and see how your body and mind feels meeting the moment fully. And then on the next breath, say, may I meet it as a friend? And then in the next breath in and out, see how it feels meeting the moment as a friend.
I find that when I'm sitting these days, I think about um, my friend Sarah, who's uh, who went on a wonderful trip with her husband planned in Europe for 30 days and on day two fell down and uh, had lots of cracks in her pelvis and came home but now is all better and has gone back to teaching mindfulness in her Unitarian church and I'm also thinking about my grandson Colin who has a new job that he's very very excited about so I'm pleased for him too who are you thinking about this morning? I'm thinking I'm very lucky to be here and I'm really grateful that all of you came back and I'm super grateful to have you be here to listen to my poetry and my musings not my poetry other people's poetry and my reflections so I'm glad to be back and I'll be back and for everybody that we mentioned and everybody that we didn't mention, may all beings be at ease, omitting none. So, we do this entirely out of order today, but that's okay. Before you go home, it's two minutes to twelve, turn to the person or persons next to you and say, hello, how are you? What brought you here? Did you have a good time? What did you learn this morning? Any of the above. Thank <laughs> you.
don't don't do anything. I love Billy Collins too. Oh, he's he's the best, isn't he? He's the best. And I think I, I think that uh, like you and I and he have this characteristic of being um, quasi self sacrilegious. Like, don't take yourself too serious. I love that one about the, tell her about the Tom O'Leary and about the bananas and the bread. <laughs> no. No, I really, it's so, you know. No, just leave them. Thanks, thank you. There's a lot of fun. <laughs> Happy New Year. I'm Brian. I am Ann. Nice to meet you. Thank you, you too. Please leave the chairs. Uma. Uma. Yes, 
on the west side of India. Southern India, Chennai. And I know about you through Danny Shapiro's books. Oh, yes. So how do you know Danny? I don't know Danny. I know Danny's books. I've read every one of them. I love her writing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.